It's a pleasure to meet a man who embodies characteristics of true masculinity, and who today, and throughout his story, in many ways has lived out the most realistic picture of the modern man. Courageous, liberated, agog. Phineas Ellis started his career working with brands like Warby Parker and Jack Irwin, where he excelled with the ability and willingness to take on new endeavors and helping brands find their momentum. With an irrefutable draw to entrepreneurship, Phineas understands the meaning of hard work, the risk of ownership, and the reward of doing something that truly makes a difference. As the host of the podcast Done Differently and co-founder of Stereotype Studio, he has gracefully stepped into the role of curator, cultivating a space where the conversations that matter can be had. In this episode, we learn more about the man behind the mic. We hear stories of cross-country adventures in the earlier days of his career, and the importance of his work today, and why he is taking on the responsibility of helping others share their voice. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hey, Phineas. How are you? Good, how are you? Very well. Good. Thank you so much for joining us here on How He Does It. No problem. Happy to be here. So, um, I guess we'll start with the basics. Where you're from, uh, what brought you to New York, all that good stuff. I grew up in Vermont. I uh, left, uh, went to school in Pennsylvania, moved quickly um, to Austin, Texas for about six months. I had a job and uh, and just was there doing six months at a restaurant job, just sort of screwing around, having a good time. And then I started looking for a quote-unquote real job. Um, and I wanted to move back east and I got a call from a friend who had a friend who worked at a startup in New York that she thought I'd be a good fit at and um, coincidentally it was Warby Parker and they were a small company at the time and I had been following along the uh, I had actually heard about them already and and sort of felt like serendipity and so I flew my I, I interviewed and then flew to New York to interview again and then got the job and quickly left Austin and moved to New York and, and uh, yeah, never, kind of never looked back. Cool. Now, did you go to school in Austin? No, I went to school in Pennsylvania. I went okay. to a small school called Dickinson College. Okay. It's in Central PA. It's a liberal arts school. And what did you study? I studied political science and I minored in Spanish. Wow. And studied abroad in Argentina. And uh, so I'm, I'm a, I got a well-rounded liberal arts, overpriced liberal arts er- education. Yeah. Look at that. What part of Argentina? <laughs> Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires. Y te hablas castellano. Ah, sí, un poco. Okay, sí. Cruza la calle. <laughs> castellano, ¿no? Con el acento. Sí, sí. Yo, yo me, me llamo. Uh-huh. Sí. Pero me llamo en Me llamo, me llamo. Sí, sí, sí. Mm-hmm. sí. Um, cool. So you moved to New York. And you were working with Warby Parker. That was fun. Look at that, a little that Spanish. I didn't, yeah, know, I I didn't know you spoke Spanish. I do. Amazing. Wow. Do you speak well? I, I, I fake it very well. Mm-hmm. Next time we'll do an interview just in Spanish. No, absolutely not. Okay. Yeah. We'll talk about it. We'll think okay. about it. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> so Warby Parker, small at the time. Yes. So you came on board. Did you know exactly what you'd be doing or was it kind of? Customer experience. Okay. Which was the fancy way of saying customer service. Um, everybody at the company with the exception of the executives was doing that role. It was come in and basically 
you answer emails, you process orders, you fix prescriptions, you call doctors, you um, kind and then a whole bunch of other small things. But mm-hmm. it was there was a group of us, a small group of us that were entry level young customer service folks that believe were, were were sold a dream that we believed in and it was a a, a a good sale it wasn't a bad dream it was a beautiful thing to be sold and we committed to it and we were really excited about it and so we worked hard mm. and then we went out and were social together it was a great chapter we were young and we were excited to be there and and uh so I did that for, I was in that role for about five months and then the, um, they approached me about a, uh, a, a weird new thing that they were considering doing and they thought I'd be a good fit for it. Um, and turned out that they were buying a big yellow school bus hmm. and they were going to retrofit it and put it, um, on the road. They were going to retrofit it, and make it a, a mobile retail store and they needed somebody to run the tour and, um, they thought that I could could do it. I'm not sure why, um, but I think it was some level of my sort of outgoing personality and willingness to to do something different and sort of ambition. I don't know. I'm guessing, but so did that and uh, I ended up getting that role. And they told me, like, sort of after I committed that, yeah, he, you can drive the bus, right? It's a 35 foot, 10 feet tall school bus, vintage like retro design school bus. Wow, and I don't have any experience driving a school bus. I don't have it. Didn't have a commercial license, and I just kind of went. And we, I flew down to Roanoke, Virginia, which is where it was being built. And that's a whole other story. But long, long, super long story short, I ended up. Um, it was delayed and being built, so I had to. The first time I ever drove it was, it was eight o'clock. It was seven o'clock at night, and we had an event in at Bryant Park. New York Times was coming. A whole okay. bunch of people were coming to launch the tour the next day at, and it would start, we, we were going to open at 11 a.m., be open all day, and then we were going to have a party that night at like 6 o'clock at night, and yeah. all these publications were going to come. And it was 8 p.m., and I was in Roanoke, Virginia, which is at 11 hours away. And uh, so... It and was, at this point, you've never driven a bus before? Never driven a bus. Okay. So it's 8 p.m., Seven, I can't remember, six, seven, eight, something like that. It was the sun had set. It was about to set, and I got, I literally was like the the guy showed me how to like use the air brakes and do a couple things, and then I just started driving, and I drove all night, uh, and, um, you know, I was about and I drove all night. I was falling asleep. I had to stop and do push-ups in the back of the bus oh because I was. <laughs> you know, falling asleep and had to get my, my blood moving. And then I was an hour outside the city and then there was like a full on rainstorm. And it was like, I was coming over the the GW bridge rain. It was, a, it was crazy. It was like, I, I quit and I'm stuck in traffic. GW bridge is eight in the morning. Like it was just insane coming down FDR. Like not, not sure whether the top of the bus was going to hit the, was going to get clipped by the underpasses because yeah. we were it was so tall. I, I, I just didn't know. I didn't know what it was rated for. So I ended up turning in and got there at like 6 a.m., 6.30, 7 a.m., something like that. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of like that level of chaos for most of the time. We mm-hmm. got better at it, but we were on the road for eight months. We did 10 cities. Um, 
and then I came off the bus and passed it off to somebody else. They well after my era they hired a professional driver. Okay. Um, probably wise. Yeah. And uh so yeah, that was that was a wonderful chapter and was my sort of my first foray into the world of, of retail and experiential marketing and brand and sort of all that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where all did you guys go with the bus? We did kind of uh, we, I, I can just, yeah, I can just list them off. Mm-hmm. We did New York, Boston, Philly, DC, Nashville, Dallas, quick pit stops in New Orleans and Vegas, but not to sell. Um, and then we did San Diego, LA, San Francisco, Portland. Gotcha. And you and the team. Yeah. They would send me a team of three and they, those, that, those three would rotate or four, three or four would rotate every three months. So I had three different teams. Gotcha. Yeah. Gosh, was that so much fun? It was so much fun. Yeah, it was it was chaos. You know, it was yeah. high intensity, really, really fun, but just a sort of like an adrenaline rush mm-hmm. for the whole time. But it was really, really fun. It was one of the most formative, certainly at that, but at that point in my career, was the most formative ex- professional experience of my life, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So what followed after that? Do you feel like Warby Parker was a good place to kind of get your feet wet to step into the industry or it was a wonderful place. Uh, I owe a lot to, to Warby Parker. Uh, it was a uh, gr- wonderful leadership, wonderful people, really, really smart, qualified people that, um, you know, believed in something greater than themselves in many ways. You know, I think it's hard for companies and startups to actually have a, a vision that feels meaningful and that feels more than just selling a product and, I think companies today, you see a lot of mission statements, but it's kind of, I think the business from top to bottom kind of lacks some, uh, can lack some of those, you know, truly, truly important things that, that they suggest that they represent, but they might not represent. And, and Warby Parker really did. You know, we felt that certainly as young people, but um, it was a wonderful place to work and, I came back from the bus. I did stores within. I, did, I, I joined the retail marketing team. I did um, took over. Um, we called them showrooms. It was the first retail of the company was shop and shop stores within stores, and then helped with the sort of initial flagship style retail rollout. Um, just the first few helped open the LA location, and um, and uh, yeah, at that point, I had was sort of ready to do something else and i had also you know was getting to the point where i was starting to not overstay my welcome but when you know i'm not a system person i'm not Mm -hmm. good at building systems i'm not good at process i'm not good at i'm not i'm not a great employee i'm great at executing a thing um, but i'm not built to be at the same business for years and years it's not what i'm built for so honestly it's it's remarkable that i made it for three and a half to almost four years at Orbe, at one company. Uh, it's a testament to them, it's a testament to them being willing to put me on crazy projects where I could succeed. So um, after that, yeah, I was ready to leave, and I, I sort of told everybody that I was ready to leave and then ended up slowly leaving and hmm. transitioned out. Gotcha. So at one point, this is just a side note, but have you ever read the book Good to Great? Yes, I have actually. Where they talk about having the right people on the bus, but also having them on the right seat. Yep. Do you feel like Warrior Parker did a good job of making sure people were in? I mean, you were there for three to four years, which I'm sure had to do with, had something to do with the position you were put in. 
I think they did a good job. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's hard. I, mm. I think it's really hard. And I think if you were to ask people that work there uh, and have been there for a long time or, or the founders or, or anybody, I think that they would admit that it's hard. Mm. You know, I think they did a really good job considering how many people come through the doors. It's really, really hard to make sure everybody's in a position to succeed all the time. Cause when the company's growing that quickly, that also means that it's changing that quickly. So you work really hard to keep your core tenants, your core tenants, but the business changes. You're always sort of, you're keeping up with growth. You're trying to pursue more growth. You're hiring lots of people. Some people are quitting. Some people are getting pushed out because it's not a good fit and that's uncomfortable and you have to do, you know, whatever it is, like any normal business, mm. um, it's really hard. So I'll admittedly, any startup environment is, is chaos to some degree. I think in that environment was probably the best it could have been while they were growing as quickly as they were. So yeah, I think they did a really good job of it. They certainly um, like took the time to really consider that at every stage and tried their best to make that the case. And I think it went a long way and it was why so many people have been there for so long and why I was there as long as I was. Gotcha. Now you say that you're in the business of helping brands scale. When did that come into play? When did you find that? So, um, I, I left Warby and I took a job at a, a startup called Jack Irwin, a direct consumer men's shoe company. I, I was sort of like head of brand or business development and did strategy. And, um, we were only like six people when I started, uh, and I was there for about a year and a half. That was a startup. That was truly a startup environment um, and learned a lot. I was there for about a year and a half. And, and at that point in my career, I was ready to get out of startups. I was burnt out. I was mm -hmm. like, I, I just, um, so I really needed something different. And sort of at that same time, a friend of mine who's a sushi chef uh, reached out and wanted to start a sushi concept. And said, you know, you should quit your job and come do this with me. And, um, again, long story short, uh, I t basically told him to keep reaching out to me if he was serious. Um, and he did. And so I ended up, uh, signing, a, signing a, you know, unofficial, we signed the back of a receipt. It was like a partnership agreement at a, at a coffee shop. And then I quit my job the next day and we ended up opening a pop-up omakase style sushi restaurant together in the inside of a small nightclub in the lower east side the the club was called happy ending and most people have probably been there or heard of it or have a story there hopefully it's it actually since closed but we we uh uh we opened a, a a restaurant called belly at happy ending so it was like a 12 seat omakase style restaurant and we also had tables but we cut fish out, you know, he would cut fish out on the bar and feed it directly to the, it was really, really sort of visceral, cool experience. And it was a nightclub too. So, you know, we would start serving at eight, but by 11, you'd have a line at the door, wow. you know, kind of thing. So it was just really sort of chaotic, um, wonderful experience. And, uh, did that for a year, a crazy year in the, the city, the cops, the city, everybody ended up shutting down the club. So that was the end of that chapter. And okay. uh, there's a whole there's a whole lot of stories there. But basically, it was, uh, you know, it's the, the club doesn't exist anymore. 
and uh, but it was a great chapter and I wouldn't trade it and I learned a lot and so from there I started I was like right, I'm gonna go back into the startup world and I'm gonna start consulting I'm gonna work for myself at that point I was like I'm probably never gonna work for somebody ever again and uh, so I started my own small consultancy basically I just started telling people that I was a consultant yeah and retail and marketing and brand marketing was kind of my my niche and uh, I just started generating stuff I don't know I started meeting with everybody and have eventually people started hiring me to help with retail strategy, sort of like figuring out what you should do for retail. And, uh, if you haven't done it before, and then I started connecting different brands with different partners and, um, I had strong relationships already and I started to sort of strengthen those relationships with different agencies, design agencies, PR agencies, and just sort of got a good kind of flow of clients not all of them, in fact, most of them weren't paying me directly, but in some way I was making money from it. If mm -hmm. I connected you to another person, I had a referral agreement with that other agency, that other agency would pay me 10% of what they got paid, you know. And I was just sort of became a connector. And then I had a few clients that were paying me directly. And then I got, um, then I landed sort of my first big client, which was Peloton. And I did a, I did a mobile to retail tour for Peloton. And that turned into Bonobos, and um, I was working closely with this agency called Bobby Red, and they're a retail design build, experiential design build firm. And I'd sent them many, many clients over the years. So finally, and this is more recent, um, I folded that business into Bobby Red and became a partner at Bobby Red. So now I'm a partner, sort of head of um, business development strategy at Bobby Red, and uh no longer have my own separate clients. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the quick story. Wow. Um, what gave you the confidence to do that, to just go for it? Uh, you know, I, it's a good question. Um, I, I certainly am a confident person, but I don't know that it was confidence so much as self-awareness. I think for me, um, you know, self-awareness is, I think the most empowering the most empowering thing you can have as a creative or as an entrepreneur or as a any or as a employee, no matter what it is, uh, you know, for me, it took me years, took me longer than I would like to become fully self-aware of my position professionally and what I'm good at, where I should fit in. And I, you know, I think in some Warby Parker gave me so much, but it, one thing that it also did was it clouded my vision a little bit of who I was. It was such a great place to work that I really loved it. You know, I got a lot out of it and I was able to contribute and, um, wasn't until after Warby Parker where I started realizing, Oh my gosh, I'm probably never going to be an employee again. I'm just not an employee. I'm not that yeah. good. I'm not, you know, it's just not how I'm built. And so after, I could have gone back into a startup role but I, as an employee, but I would have been miserable. And mm -hmm. I would have not. And when I'm miserable, I don't perform well. And when I don't perform well, I become like, it's just not good, you know. And, and I could survive at places. Look, I could always get a job and survive and, you know, dip and duck my way through. But yeah. if, you want, if I want to succeed, I knew that I had to do it on my own. I knew that I had to be my own boss. I knew that I had to be the creator on my own. Because when I'm doing that... I become highly productive and it totally flips on its head. So it wasn't so much confidence. It was, it was the self-awareness to know that that's in line with who I am. 
And I think in many ways, since I left Warby Parker, it's been a journey of self-alignment. It's been sort of trial and error and slow and every step of the way, continuing to build a life around who I am and the things that turn me on and excite me and motivate me. And so, yeah. And so, so, so joining, you know, being part of Bobby Red as a partner and then starting this podcast studio um, and launching my own show, those are all examples of self-alignment. And I, you know, every day I feel more sort of self-actualized than I did the day before because now I feel like I have some real clarity on what I want to do. And so, yeah, confidence definitely plays a role. I think confidence plays more of a role in the execution every day. It plays a role of like being in the room, you know, attacking the meeting or going after the next client or that's confidence. But self-awareness is those big transition moments. It's saying, okay, I have to, I have to jump because if I don't jump, I'm on a sinking ship. Wow. So good. Cool. So we are sitting here in stereotype studio. Uh, you are the one who makes how he does it possible. How did this come about? Yeah. So, uh, we, I, my business partner, Courtney and I, um, were, had been talking for a while about starting a studio. We both have podcasts. I didn't at the time I do now. Um, he has a show and he's done 60 episodes. It's an amazing show. It's called the Privy Podcast. It's an LGBTQ podcast and it's really, really good. And uh, he and I were in the very early stages of opening our studio. And we were at a restaurant nearby called Sunny Boy. And I look to my right and I see your partner, IG. And uh, I, I know him because when I was at Jack Irwin, he was a still in college trying to break into the world of, uh, you know, content marketing influencer menswear world. And, uh, it was just a really kind, you could tell really smart and just sort of under looked at things in a sort of a different way than most of the other people in that world that we were interacting with. And so he started coming to all our events. So we developed a little bit of a relationship and he's, um, I've been a follower and a fan of, of the work that he's been able to create over the last, you know, years now at this point, that was years ago. Um, so I saw him at this restaurant and I was like, Hey, how's it going? We started chatting and I was like, he was like, what are you doing? I was like, Courtney and I are here talking about doing, we're doing, opening a podcast studio. We're going to produce podcasts. And he was like, you know, I've been thinking about doing a podcast. So that's how it started. Gotcha. And, uh, yeah. So now we, now we're in it and we have multiple clients and we're moving and shaking. Yeah. And how did the idea come about for starting the podcast studio? I really want, I mean, he has a podcast and he was renting space from somebody else. Mm -hmm. I has, have been trying to and planning on launching a podcast for an embarrassing amount of time at this point. Um, again, it's, there are two things that really, that I want out of my life professionally. There are two main things. One is I want to be paid to do what I love, which is interacting with people, which is verbal communication, which is learning new things. Having my own show is a great way to do that. Meeting people, having them on the show, talking about stuff. Um, 
The second thing is being an owner. I'm not really that interested in anything other than being an owner. And so I don't want to rent podcast studio space from somebody else. And I, I also am not interested in just having a podcast for the sake of having a podcast. I want to own the production studio. I want to produce the shows myself. Um, and I want to have space where I can bring people together. Those are things that I love. So I wanted to have a studio and sort of he also wanted to have a studio and we kind of just connected on that and decided to do it, decided to do it together. Really yeah. Great. Yeah. Really great. And I realized like, you know, certain things about your career, you just have to make a decision of what you want, right? Like I just decided I'd rather be broke and an owner than rich and an employee. Mm. I just would be like, if you told me that I could make 50 grand a year for the next 10 years or 200 grand a year, but I'd be an owner versus an employee. I would choose owner. It sounds cliche or it sounds like it's not true, but it, it just, it is true. And people that know me well can attest. Like I, I just, I'm not interested. And so being, you know, you know, we're about to build our first small sound booth and then we're already looking at bigger space. And now we have a list of, you know, I think we're at five, we have like five clients and probably like six or seven more that are in the works. And some of them are really exciting. This show is really exciting. And so, you know, I want to be able to work with creative people. I want to be able to create, and I want myself to be able to be creative. I'm not an artist. So my creativity, I'm a builder and I'm a creator, but I'm not like a traditional creative. So podcast producing and editing and content and production actually comes kind of naturally to me in a way that I didn't realize. And now we have an audio intern and, you know, Courtney and I are running it and we're hopefully going to build a big studio and it's going to be really great. So anyway. Yeah. Well, what, what's something that you would like to be unique to what you guys do? Because there's a lot of podcasts, there's a lot of studios. Uh, and for me personally, working with you guys, there is something very safe, comfortable, and also just incredible guidance. Um, but from your words, what would you say is unique yeah, it's to a great, what you do? Yeah, it's a really good question. So two things. One, the studio is called Stereotype Studio. You know, we want to be a place where we can give voice to anybody that needs it or wants it, right? So there is an element of like we want to be a studio that is a safe place that encourages people that we think should have a voice um, and just need a little nudge or a little guidance to come at our core. That's really what we want, you know, and, and, uh, we want, that's sort of the, the biggest thing. The second thing is, um, strategy. You know, we, we're very strategic. We want to be partners in these shows. You know, I'm not interested in, in producing a true crime podcast, you know, for example, but I am interested in being a producer and a partner in shows that I think are compelling because from a strategic perspective, I think we can add a lot of value and we're interested in building brands, personal brands, you know, brand brands, you know, uh, like the, how he does it podcast. I'm excited about the future and we're building the building blocks now, but in the future we could, it could become live shows. It could become, you know, we could do a lot of things with it and we're interested in, looking at each podcast like a small business. Mm. And so we want to figure, we want to give voice to people that we think 
deserve it and need it and should be heard. And then we want to build those into larger voices. We don't, I'm not interested in being a recording studio where you rent it out by the hour. I'm not interested in, it's just not interesting to me. So we want to be in the business of building brand. Yeah. Oh, great. You have a vision for the next five years? You know, uh, I have a, yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm excited to merge the work I do um, from a retail design perspective with Bobby Red and the studio a little bit more. Um, I'd like, you know, we're full service at the moment, but we don't have in-house designers or, you know, at, at the studio. I mean, we don't, you know, we don't do a lot of like graphic design or creative from that perspective. So I'd like to add that in. I'd like to move into a space that's bigger and uh, has multiple recording studios. And then I'd like to be in the business of producing um, live shows, content, video content. I want to be a small media. I want to be a small media company um, with clients that we're really excited about. I don't want a big roster of clients. I would like a, f a small roster of really great clients that we can work with closely. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, five years, gosh, I don't think five years ahead. I really don't. I, I think, I think probably six months ahead at the most when I'm really trying, Okay. but I'm an everyday guy. I don't really think about the future all that much or all that well, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really am like today we have today. Like if you ever schedule a meeting with me, inevitably I'm going to schedule it on the earlier option date. So if you say like, can we talk like. Uh, this date or that date or that date, I'm gonna choose the first date because I want to get, I want to have it happen sooner. Yeah, I don't like waiting for things, so I like to stack my stuff up quickly mm. because otherwise stuff doesn't happen. And, yeah, you know. So, do you feel like that's been an advantage in you stepping into the world of being an entrepreneur and uh, not thinking so much about the future? And, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I, you know, and I think, I think. Uh, you know, there's these things called beta blockers that people take like for performance and it's supposed to like make you not feel fear as much or, you know, you can, the military's developed things where you can like take things that'll theoretically like mitigate the amount of fear and anxiety that you have in a certain moment. I've been thinking about that concept a lot recently and it's, I'm sure it's in a lot of sci-fi movies too, which is like they design like, you design soldiers that don't have the fear mechanisms. They can go into battle and just you know not feel fear, right? I think doing stuff on your own is kind of similar to that. You have to sort of trick your mind into thinking, uh, into not feeling fear or not feeling those things that creep in every single day. It's really an exercise in just blocking that out. And that, that it's not just, that's a few things. It's once comparing yourself to everybody else around you. It's, worrying about your bank account um it's worrying about the quality of what you put out and how you'll be judged in the marketplace it's worried about the how you're seen in the eyes of the people that you respect or the people that you don't respect or your parents you know these are all things that dictate what we do in life and so in order to do these things um we have to have blockers and we have to put artificial blockers in our minds you just have to you have to sort of blunt those sense those sensors because they're holding you back. Um, and so, you know, I was doing this exercise a couple of years ago um, 
and I wanted to, it was right after the restaurant. I had basically no money and I was starting consulting and I was like, I decided to kind of, I wanted to feel what it felt like to have zero, to go to zero, to have no money and to have no job and to have like, to really, to, to be at zero. And I, so I did that. I was like, I had almost went to zero financially and I had no job. I had no clients, but I had, it was this like, because I was, I wasn't doing it by design. It was like kind of already there anyways, but I was flipped it and sort of made myself think that it was by design, leaned into it. And once you feel that, you know, you realize, first of all, you realize your privilege. You realize that you have, I realized my privilege too, right? You realize that you have parents that you could always go home to. You realize that you're, even if you run out of money completely, you're still going to eat. You're still going to have a warm place to sleep. But I did have nights where I, you know, was moving apartments. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a job. And I was like, it's not when you realize it's not that scary and you're okay. If you, if you feel what it feels like to be at zero, you realize that it's not that scary. It's not that scary. And the scariest part about it is what you think other people will think of you. Mm. That's the scariest part. And then you focus on that. You realize how insane that is, that that's the driving force that somebody else's vision of you is what's motivating you to do a thing or not do a thing. That made me really angry. It made me, it made me think of like, why am I living my, why and how am I living my life for these other people and how they see me? That was a really empowering thing. And from that point on, and look, I fight, this is a battle I still fight every single day. So yeah. it's not perfect. But from that point on, that's where my mind goes. When I'm deciding whether to do a thing or not do a thing, I think about going to zero and what that felt like. And then I think, okay, well, who am I doing this for? And then it's really been, that has been really helpful for me in, in making decisions that are more in line with who I am. Yeah. And you'd say that that's still a daily struggle or a daily battle. Every day. Yeah. Every day. Absolutely. I mean, it gets easier because not every day or you're not making big decisions every day. I mean, how do you feel about it? Do you, do you feel like you're making, when you make a decision, are you making a decision based on what you want or are you making a decision based on what you think you should do in the eyes of other people? Yeah. Have you ever struggled with that same thing? Oh, for thing? sure. I think about that so often of yeah. uh, having to question my motives and question how I enter a room, leave a room, decisions I make and decisions I don't make. And is it actually for me and what's best for me? Is it for me according to how other people are viewing me or seeing me? Especially in the industry that you're in. Oh my gosh. Which is a very public facing. Uh, it's about how you present. It's it's It's... It's marketing. Mm-hmm. It's how you're marketing yourself. Yeah. And so it's, you know, the, the ironic thing, and I'd love your perspective on this, is what, if you think, if you juxtapose what, um, if you juxtapose that, what we've discussed, with what you know people actually respond to, they don't match up. Mm-hmm. So you know in your heart, or intellectually, you know, not in your heart, in in your mind, intellectually, you know that when you look at marketing, that's most compelling. There's a couple things that that's rise to the top. Sure, it's quality, fine, okay, well done, positioning, marketing, that kind of thing. Um, but even more than that, it's authenticity, yeah. right? It's that's the word we all use. Mm-hmm. Authenticity doesn't mean, you know, necessarily like 
going out there and opening your heart and crying about the fact that you're insecure about one thing or another. Sure. If that's authentic to you in that moment, that's authenticity. But if it's not, it's not. And it's not always, it's not how you're presenting. It's, it's, it's authenticity. And so, you know, that ignoring what other people are thinking and going and doing and acting and presenting in the way that's authentic to you, you know, intuitively and intellectually that that is what's effective but it's not what we do because we're insecure. And so everyone's insecure, right? Because we believe that we need to operate within, in the, in the, inside of the, the eyes of the people that look, look at us. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in the eye of the beholder. Right. And so we, but we, so those two things are at odds. And I think that's a really interesting thing when it comes to marketing especially in the world that you're in and Mm -hmm. that I'm sort of tangentially in is, you know, we know our goal is to get to authenticity, but the way that we get there, oftentimes it just takes us a lot longer because we have to go through all of these steps of doing what we think other people want to see. Oh yeah. And everyone has an opinion. Sure. Oftentimes people are uh, more than willing to give it to you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and when you hear those opinions, they affect you. Mm-hmm. Even if you know that they shouldn't, they affect you because we're insecure Yeah. or be, because we care. And, uh, you know, uh, so I just think a lot about these kinds of things. These are, you know, the, the, we live in New York, you know, the, this is a, the opportunity, the, the sheer magnitude of opportunity in New York is it's just outrageous, right? Just just riding the subway in New York, you can find new opportunity, mm-hmm. right? And it's not that way anywhere else in the world. So with that, what are the biggest reasons why we're not capitalizing on a lot of that opportunity? So I think about those things. And in my opinion, it's all psychological, right? And if we can understand what is happening to us psychologically and why we're acting the way that we're acting. Mm. It's the most empowering thing we can do. Mm. Yeah. How do you get to the point for you personally where you're hearing your voice over other people's voice? I hear both voices. Um, I, I grew up playing sports. I grew up with a, in a household where my mom leaned into confrontation, didn't lean into confrontation, but she, embraced confrontation because she thought it was healthy. I'll admit, I think of it almost, I trick my mind into thinking of it kind of like combative sport. Hmm. And I, I think, okay, you to your voice against my voice. Who are you? Yeah. You know, who the fuck are you? Like, that's how I think about it. Really. I'm like, and I, it's not directed at any individual person. It's the other voice in my head. And you just have to, I don't know, like, I hear both voices. Um, I just, uh, I want my voice to win that mm-hmm. fight. And so you, yeah. Um, look, the reality is, is like, if I'm broke and have nothing and have nothing to show for it and have created nothing, as long as I am comfortable with who I am and the decisions that I've made, that's what matters. And also, that's sexy. That's sexy. Owning your shit is the sexiest thing you can do. Mm. If you put it that way, it's like, what do we love about people? We love confidence. 
We love people who know what they want. The best people, the, the people that we're all, gravi we're all gravitate towards are people that uh, you either, the, the most compelling people in life are people that you're either attracted to or you repel, mm -hmm. right? You either hate them or you love them, right? Tom Cruise, you love them or you hate them, right? Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump, you love them or you hate them. Same thing. Barack Obama, you love him. I mean, these are compelling people because they stand for something. Now, Donald Trump's a bad example because I don't think he stands for anything. But <laughs> but not to get political. Sorry. How he does it doesn't get political. Um, just kidding. But uh, I, you know what I mean? So I th think that's a really, that's something I think about a lot. I want to be somebody that, stand, that knows what I want. Mm. And I try to know what I want every day. I think that's compelling. And I'm more interested in living that, of being, of living that life than trying to gain the things that society deems valuable so that other people can see me in a different way. I don't care how you see me. Now, deep down, I do. Mm -hmm. But the layers above that really genuinely doesn't care. If I really dig down deep and you think that I, if you think that I'm a bad person or whatever, that does affect me, but I can't let that be the first few layers of me because I can't care what you, you know, I, I don't care. Mm -hmm. And that's really, that's how I think about it. It's yeah. a long winded way of how I think about it. Yeah. And you can't let that be the ultimate driving factor in how you navigate your life. Absolutely. Yeah. I try to not have it be a factor at all. Yeah. Uh, I do it to an extreme, though, at some points where, you know, you have to also cons uh, consider other people's feelings. You have to consider, you have to make sure that you're being a good person. Mm -hmm. These are really important things, too. And it's important that you don't let your drive and your sort of tunnel visioned approach to being true to yourself um, omit those other factors. Those are really important too. So that's the struggle as well for me is to make sure, oh, I also got to make sure that I'm being a good person, a genuine person, that I'm being present, that I'm being kind. It's not all about me, but, but it needs to be mostly about me. Yeah. Putting your mask on before you can help others. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. Batman. But, so anyway, it, that's that's how I think about it. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, Finis, thank you so much for sitting with us, sure. for sharing with us, for this confident and sexy interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for joining us on How He Does It. No problem, absolutely. Absolutely.